0: You're listening to part two of a two part episode with my friends and business advisors, Russ Morgan and Joy Murray from Wealth Without Wall Street. They talk about how financial freedom is really possible, what you can do to achieve it right now, and how you can start building for that future that future where you know that what you build and grow actually starts to pay you, not 30 years from now, but maybe. Much sooner than you think. But in today's episode, we're going to actually talk tactically about one of the key vehicles in making financial freedom a reality for you. And that is the concept of becoming your own banker. Becoming your own banker is a broader concept uh, around the concept of infinite banking, how you can actually be your own bank. Be your own bank so that you can borrow from it, you can create the cash flow, and you can lend to it, you can get from it, you can deploy assets through it. You can do so many things when you are your own banker. without Actually, depending on financial institutions, can you create, can you carve out a piece of the world for yourself so that you can secure your financial future and that of your family forever? That is the first step, is the vehicle to having financial freedom forever. In today's episode of part two with Russ Morgan and Joy Murray, we unpack the concept of infinite banking and becoming your own banker. And it starts right now. One thing is for certain So if you've not listened to part one, we broke down how you can actually have financial freedom a lot sooner than you think. You don't have to wait for 30, 40, 50 years, but that involves doing something. And that concept, what Russ and Joey talk about is called infinite banking and how to be your banker today. And we gave you a little teaser. We gave you a little teaser, which was don't do what everyone tells you to do, do what the, the the most successful people and institutions in the world do. And Russ, you talked about the idea of having readily accessible resources to do more. And I know there's so many pieces of this infinite banking puzzle. And I don't wanna break that down for people today, but I wanna actually just show them how, like how does it all work so they get more familiar with it and, and less stressed about it? Yeah, well, let, let me
1: tell you where this came from. So I was, uh, as I mentioned before, an investment advisor. Spent a, a number of years, almost five years in that world exclusively, no insurance, none of that stuff. So I, I kind of come from the part where I look down on the insurance world as more like the only reason they do that is because they're not qualified and wasn't smart enough to pass all the security exams that I did. I mean, that really was my mentality. And I know that there's still some in that community that, that still think that. So when I, I had, I've been given uh, the gift of, of marrying my wife and 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 then inheriting my in-laws. And I, I say that actually tongue-in-cheek because they're the best in-laws anyone could have. But I remember early on, right, the my father-in-law coming to me and saying, okay, if you're going to help me with my money, don't mess it up. And <laughs> I don't know if the M was the word he was using, but there were some other words, in there, right? <laughs> well, so his father had been this bank president in a little small town of Kansas that little bank had gotten bought by bank of America and his shares became a pretty, you know, seven figure number, which is really big for a little modest family living in the Midwest. And when he passed and I think it was late 2006, he gave this, uh, you know, small fortune to my father-in-law and my father-in-law comes to me and, you know, he working guy made hundred thousand dollars a year, but really had nothing to show for it. Cause he had three kids that burned every dollar he had. Right. I mean, this is just the, <laughs> Way way we do the modern family, and he says, Russ, don't mess it up. And he goes, Also, my father said, Never sell this stock because it's the best thing that's ever that he's ever had because it paid dividends and everything else. And I was like, Okay, well, we'll just put it in a brokerage account. I don't really have to do a whole lot. I'll protect it by putting a stop loss on it. And for those who don't know what a stop loss is, it just means that if the stock price falls by a certain percentage, it sells it because there's certain technical indicators that would say that it may keep going. Now I put that shrine at 15% and bank of America at that point in time had been so stinking stable for so long. It was a joke to even put it at 15%. Like it might as well have been 99% in my eyes. <laughs> well, little did we know in 07 was going to be the front edge of the financial crisis. And the banks obviously were the first ones to get hit. Bank of America stock started tumbling from a little over $50 a share downward. And it triggers this 15% stop loss and sells all like 2,500 shares he has. And I get the what the just happened call. And what did you do? And how are you going to undo this? Not. Thank you for selling this stock and and protecting me from a further downside, but you just messed up because it's about to come back. Whatever just happened is well, temporary. A, is a anomaly, right? Yeah. And now I've I'm I'm stuck and I'm having to kind of explain to him what's going to have to happen. Well, of course we all know if you look at the charts and we all know what happened in 07, 08, 09, that Bank of America stock fell from over fifty dollars a share down to around five dollars a share. Yeah if you do the math, we, we went from having a little, we would have had a little over a million dollars down to around 25 or 30 grand. So I instantly came back in good graces that that was not his <laughs> position. <laughs> right? i become a hero now for, for this one little thing. But the reason I, I I start with that is that he then for the next probably, I don't know, 12 months is sitting on a large, you know, nest egg of money, seven figure number. And But he's terrified. He doesn't know what to do with it. Because he personally has never had any experience with money. The one thing he knew had to be sold. And so then he's sitting there like, what do I do? And to be honest, as all the markets crashing around him, I, as a trained CFP, and I'm going to people and they don't know what's going on and why it's happening, We're, we're both like, okay, let's sit in cash. I go to this conference. I read this book called Becoming Your Own Banker after listening to this like at the time, late 70-year-old economists talking about how big banks use our cash, our deposits, in order to then turn around and lend it and make a good living off of it. Right. And I was like, okay, wait a second. I'm starting to see the right end of the wall because my wife, at the end of 2008, started a dental practice. Great time to start a business, right? <laughs> and we start this business and who do we go and borrow, you know, 700,000 from Bank of America. America. Cause yep. that's one of the leading lenders in the dental market. And I'm like, wait a second, I'm reading this book about how banks are lending depositors, monies and making good living off of it. Why can't we just put those two things together? And I'm like, here's my follow-up with cash sitting in checkings accounts at the bank from Bank of America stock, and my wife is is literally borrowing the money that he has in the checking account from Bank of America and paying them 8%, and they're paying him point nothing, and they're making all the spread and not taking any of the risk. And I was like, can we put those two things together? Wow. And that's where the concept of becoming your own banker, when I read it in a book, and I was like, well, let's see if we put this into action and from that point forward, and like, I don't know if it was probably May or June of 2009, we actually finished all the documents. We put everything in place in order to make this happen. From that point forward until my wife sold her dental practice in January, February of 2019, her business was paying him seven to $8,000 a month on that note wow. every single month like clockwork. <sighs> and he wow.
0: couldn't have been any happier. So awesome. So awesome. Now, but... Russ, is it uh, you have an entrepreneur listening right now? And they're like, okay, well, that's a cool situation that you put together. I, 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 Sharon, living in Topeka, Kansas, don't have access to stuff like that right now. Where can I go create this opportunity for myself?
2: Well, and that that's where it really comes down to Sharon. In light of what we talked about in our last episode, was talking about taking control. Of your financial freedom not deferring it or abdicating it to somebody else but taking control now you have to make decisions in light of that and so in our second step after clarity is control we make decisions on our budget make decisions on taxes on debt and then subsequently we have a surplus of cash as a result and when we when we have that surplus of cash we build the exact same vehicle that these large banks are doing so. For instance, um, Russ, you mentioned Bank of America. Bank of America is a great example. They put their highest quality, top tier, tier one capital into whole life insurance. Like this is the most boring asset class of all time. It's the safest. This is why they put their money there. This is what how we imitate what they're doing, and we literally design policies that are super high cash value. We're trying to actually lower the death benefit as low as we possibly can so that we can get the most cash value and growth and literally replace our savings or checking accounts with a new vehicle, this life insurance. And you can do that with your surplus cash, build that, and then subsequently have access to that cash so that you can continue To take control by creating passive income streams that's how you imitate what russ was just talking about with bank of america at the une level like we don't have to be bank of america we just have to do the small steps that they've done to become more like that
0: dude so you have to explain i i literally you you talked about death benefit I, i i so can you like can you bring this to life a little bit yeah so here's the part is that that's the hardest part
1: i think we were talking about this in the past episode the human behavior right and whether it was how do we get to a point where we try to figure out how much we're spending that's tough how do we get to a point where we can be okay not working for someone or having this title and living a life of freedom that is just because i have passive income greater than my monthly expenses that same philosophy comes into how do I put money in an asset class that the average job, Joe on the street and the person on the, uh, on the radio is going to say is the dumbest thing, right? Because they hear life insurance and they assume life insurance. Let me start with this and I'm going to go back to the numbers, okay? Yeah. The best life insurance policy that I could own personally, me, would be one where I put in, I'm just going to pick a number, $10,000 a month. And the insurance company gave me a one dollar death benefit. <laughs> now, in order to let that sink in, you're you're going wait a second. I know you're from Alabama. You, you talk slow. <laughs> you went to a public institution there in Alabama. I can I can add up a few of the problems in you know in this pro- process. But you say, well, Russ, there has to be something else. Like
0: if you don't want the death benefit, then why are you doing it? right Right? now by the way just to just to clarify the death basically we're saying hey i'm going to pay into this policy and if as me as the beneficiary and if i die i'm going to get some money and you're saying that money is a dollar conceptually speaking yeah the best one that you could buy would be a dollar because it would have the least
1: expense to it right the expense is the life insurance death benefit Right, right right so what we're trying to do is create cash. And this isn't a new idea. This idea goes back hundreds of years, right? It, this exists for people to be able to create cash values. I mean, the real estate investment world knew about this in the early 80s when the tax laws were changed and the tax attorneys were trying to figure out where are they going to be able to invest dollars that is going to be able to keep them from having to pay 50% taxes because I don't know if people know that, but the highest tax bracket... In, in the early 80s was 50%. We think we pay high dollar, high tax rates today. Like we, we're like way low historically yeah. on that. And so they were looking for places to shelter dollars that they wouldn't have to pay tax on earnings. And that's the reason why we are looking for places like this. We, when we put a dollar in a life insurance policy, Sharon, the growth internally on that, we don't have to pay tax on. It's an amazing tool. Yeah. But as Joey said, we think of it more as a checking savings account as anything. yeah. So let's go back to the example. I'm going to put $10,000 into this policy. Now, the government, Sharon, is not going to allow me to have a $1 death benefit. They've set laws, Tamara and DEFER were some of the laws they created in the mid-80s to offset what some of those tax attorneys were doing with the real estate investors back in those days, to say, you have to have a certain level of death benefit based upon the amount of cash that you're putting in it. Otherwise, this is nothing more than a tax Evasion tool, and we're going right. to treat it just like that bad 401k IRA that we were just talking about in the previous episode. <laughs>
0: right. And what I
1: mean is that if you take it out prior to 59 and a half, you got penalties, but you also have taxes on and above what you put in. Got it. So we we know that we have to put a certain level of death benefit on there, but we want that number to be as small as possible. Because by doing that, we're minimizing the expense. Because all we're interested in today is cash. Sharon. Outside of us talking about this, when's the last time you thought about your death benefit? Never. Never. You <laughs> never do. But when you think about spending cash hundreds of times a day. Yep. So we are focused on that, and that is our goal. So when we design these insurance contracts, we're designing them to be as cash-rich cash, cash rich as possible. Bank of America, I, I pulled up the, um, the numbers, and you go to FDIC.gov and pull your own bank, and, and, and these numbers, they're all public record. The last statement as of the third quarter of 2020, Bank of America is holding $22 billion in cash value life insurance.
2: That's with a Amazing. B. Yeah.
1: So when people say this is a small idea or a dumb idea, you and I know the number of people that they've had in those investment departments at the banks and the and, and the intellect there is misaligned, right? Yeah. I mean it's crazy. So we know that this is a good idea. It's just how are they doing it? They must be doing it different than the average Joe on the street. He's putting a hundred dollars in his whole life policy, getting a million dollar death benefit. Yeah. And in 10 years says, I don't have any cash. Well, because <laughs> yeah. he, he bought a, a, a million dollar death benefit. That was what he was trying to buy and, and
0: pay the little amount as possible. He was the Walmart shopper in the room. And I think, and I think that is what I, I I've been taught exactly the same thing, right? It's like, Hey, Sharon, that we can have this life insurance policy that is better than your 401k. We can mimic it, but this is, this is a better flavor. You should do this instead. And if something happens, you'll get X amount, but now you pay all this money for it. And I'm like, well, I'll just stay with my form. And that's why it was, it was always a, I never knew it was always like picking a policy off a shelf. And I never knew like, well, how does this help me? I might as well just not do this. And
1: well, and let me put it in context too, because, and I, I think unfortunately this happens, is that the person comes to you and says, hey, Sharon, you're putting money in your 401k. That's a bad idea. You're going to pay 40% taxes on it when whenever you have to take it out between 60 and 70, right? And all the tax attorneys and CPAs will tell you it's the worst asset to actually own when you die. We We know all of those bad things about it. And they'll try to say, well, oh, this life insurance policy is going to actually, from a net taxability standpoint, will be roughly what you would earn. And Joey and I would say, no, that's not the reason to do this. Don't be confused in trying to compare it to the asset class that you're wanting to ultimately invest in. Because this is nothing more than a pass through as a holding account for what we want to do Mm. In, in our process. Step two is actually having control of your money. You know, there's the, there's the uh, financial golden rule. You know the financial golden rule? Mm-hmm. No. Those who have the gold make the rules. <laughs> right? <laughs> so For us, is where is your gold? Is it in a place that you can access and control? So I, I, I know I'm weird. I have 21 whole life policies. 21. My cash resides in an account that I can write a check off of today. I can, I have a line of credit against all of that cash in there. I can write a check today. I can access it. It is as readily available as anything that I own. So for me, it is the, 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 my warehouse for my wealth. It's like a garage for your car. You take your car, you, you get in, you drive to the office this morning because you make money at the office. But when you come home, what do you do with your car? You park it back in the garage and close the door down, assuming you don't have all the boxes in it like Joey's garage, <laughs> right? To protect it, to protect it. And that's exactly That's all this life insurance tool should be is a, a flow through. It's a substitute to our savings. And unfortunately, because savings, interest rates are so stinking low, nobody wants to hold money in checking accounts and savings accounts because they're like, I'm just going backwards. Well, if you can earn three to 4% net after tax, credit approved, that has a death benefit, and you can leverage it anytime you want to, to go do the deals, to buy the real estate, invest in the businesses, and can have a place for that cash flow to come running back to, and do that over and over again. Now you start to see why we get excited about it. Why we have seven, eight, nine figure entrepreneurs flowing as much cash as they possibly can into this because it's nothing more than a safe haven for their cash until they need a place to use it.
2: Yeah. The big, the big takeaway from that, Sharon, is exactly what you mentioned is people compare it to the wrong asset class or the wrong bucket. You have a savings bucket and you have an investing bucket, and this is not your investment, right? Whole life policies are not going to make you rich. They're not going to, like the end goal is not to have a big policy or multiple policies and do nothing with them because three to 5% is just not that sexy. Well, Let's but, be honest. But
1: even more than that, that would be the accumulation approach that I have to get to some number in the future. Exactly. Already dismissed as we still won't ever know what that number needs to be.
2: Right. So instead of that, it's we're literally just comparing this to your checking or saves account. And to be honest with you, Sharon, I still have yet to have a conversation with somebody and them just really stand up for their checking or savings account. Like, Joey, <laughs> I don't know. No, you can't beat my checking account. Like, it is the best thing of all time. No, they're always like, okay, yeah, I've actually been sitting on cash and I'm actually kind of pissed about it. Like, I don't like having all this cash in my checking or savings account. It's sitting dead. In fact, Russ actually coined this recently. He's like, your cash is taking a nap, right? Like you, you need your employees at work, right? You don't need them. You walked in and one of them was asleep. You'd be like, okay, you're done. You're out. But that's what we do with our cash all the time. We literally sit it in, you know, nap time and we need, we need to get it to work. And that's what the policy allows you to do is to keep it at work, even while it's in your retained earnings, and then subsequently use it for the next big purchase, the next you know expansion, the next investment, and literally we're just doing multiple things with our dollars.
0: So, so can we bring this to life? Where it sounds to me like there's uh, if we can explore these two paths. So there's 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 uh, Jimmy the entrepreneur right now, and I'll, I'll use easy numbers. Right, has a hundred thousand dollars sitting in his Bank of America checking account because Jimmy's like I, this is my this is my rainy day account. My wife and I like to look at this number. And how many have you seen like that, right? Like insane numbers, right? He never touches it, that money, like literally he's had that 100,000 in his account making 0.001% for seven years, right? And so so you have Jimmy the entrepreneur that has a hundred grand in the checking account. It's a literally a rainy day account, hasn't done anything with it. So you have that that group of person. Then you have Johnny on the other side, who is willing, he doesn't have the $100,000 nest egg, but is having enough cash flow, uh, enough income that is happening and is willing to put aside, again, I'm making up numbers here, $5,000 a month. Now, could you take these two scenarios and say, okay, if it was Jimmy and Jimmy had 100 grand, here's how, here are some ideas for Jimmy. If it was Johnny and he, Johnny, were putting five grand a month, here are some ideas for Johnny. How would you structure those two?
1: Yeah, no, totally. So first, and I, I want to, and I think if I don't say this, it may lose the part of why we're going to say what we're say. Okay. So I'm going to answer your question. Joe, you may have to remind me what the question is because my, <laughs> my memory is <was> short, <laughs> right? All those uh, that public education, but here, here, here's the issue, right? Sharon? is that when we take a dollar and we spend it, it's gone forever can never earn 0.001 for us ever again. True? Yes. And, and that is one of the worst things that happens. We we talked about in our last episode, be the richest man of Babylon. Well, one of his principles was uh, put that gold to multiply. Yeah. Our money should always be growing. It should always be compounding. And we should never actually spend our gold. We can spend the earnings of our gold, but we should never spend our gold. Ah, uh, that's good. And unfortunately, too many people, they save cash, whether it's 5000 a month or Jimmy with 100000 in his nest egg. And when a purchase comes along, they make a decision and they spend it, and now that gold is no longer multiplying. So the first premise to all of this starts with an efficiency model that says, I need to have my money always compounding and growing, Okay. Yeah. So when when we when we look at Jimmy's hundred thousand or the other entrepreneur who has five thousand a month, and we put it into these accounts and we structure them in a way that has the smallest death benefit. So for Jimmy, usually what happens for the Jimmys of the world who has a hundred thousand, it starts off the side. He also has cash flow; he's saving somewhere, right? And and maybe like Joey's example, where the. The, the guy was putting it into a 401k or he's putting it into an account because he thinks that's the right place. But once he kind of gets an idea of what we're talking about, he says, I don't want to wait 20 years. So here's this amount of cash flow I have too. So he comes to us and says, all right, well, how can I put this 100000 in day one and flow this two to 5000 or 50000 or whatever his number is a month or a year through the plan? And we design a plan specifically for him that allows him to do it. And because he has this cash sitting there, Sharon, he literally moves money from his left pocket to his right pocket. He's yeah. not buying a huge death benefit with that 100000 but with his monthly cash flow, he does buy a decent death benefit with it that keeps it under those modified endowment contract rules, which are really just the taxability laws that the government has set. Yeah. And so he has this pool of cash, so he can always go, okay, I started this insurance policy, I'm putting in 5000 a month. I've got maybe three thousand of that five thousand available to borrow tomorrow if I want to day one, but out of that hundred thousand I put in there, I have roughly a hundred thousand I could write a check against if I wanted to, and he's like, "That's awesome."
2: Because Game on! Now
1: yeah. I've moved it out of an account earning .001 to an account that's earning somewhere between three to five percent for me,
2: and it bought a death benefit that didn't exist. The, before. the light
1: bulb goes off for him. He says, "Yes, how do I do that?" And here's the thing is that, you know, we haven't been trained on these things because the life insurance companies themselves don't teach this stuff. This is not trained at the local Northwestern or State Farm office. Right. Because they're in the business of just like the big banks and the big corporations is give us your money and let us hold it for as long as possible. We're smarter than you. Let us do that. This is literally a principle that was created in the mind's eye of a a guy named Nelson Nash, who wrote a book called becoming your own banker 20 some odd years ago. And it was his own personal life experience. He was working as a life insurance agent was saving money and was making his money as a real estate investor. And when, when the market, um, the interest rates went to over 23 and a half (laughs) percent prime back in like 1981, he was owing half a million dollars at that rate. And that was a lot of money for a little guy making, you know, 100 grand a year in 1980. Yeah. That was a lot of money. Had a 120 something thousand dollar interest payment alone on that note. And he was like, how do I get myself out of this situation? And he looked over and he says, I've got all these cash values. The problem is they're just not big enough to pay off the 500,000. If I had 500,000 in this account, I could pay off all of those banknotes. And I could take that $120,000 I was paying them in interest and I could put it back into my own account because the insurance companies were charging him a much less rate. And so so the the concept for Jimmy and anybody else is to say, this is a place that I'm going to put money and sometimes they're doing it monthly and they've got to build it up, right? I mean, if I'm putting in $500 a month and I need, you know, $50,000, it's going to take me a while to get (laughs) there, Right. Right. But if if, I, if I'm if i putting in $500 a month or $5,000 a month or $50,000 a month and I need access to a couple grand, well, it won't take me but a couple months to have access to borrow against that. Yeah, And that's the part that blows people's mind. They're like, I didn't even know you could do that. I didn't know you can borrow against life insurance policies. And we're like, yeah. And they're like, well, how long do I have to wait? Like 10 years to be able to do that? And the answer is usually about seven days. Like once you start a policy and you put cash in it, it's going to take about seven days for the insurance company to to allow you to take the first loan. And to be honest, the the biggest question they have is like, are you money laundering? (laughs) (laughs) They're they're trying to determine, like, why are you trying to do that transaction? Because in their eyes, that's not the normal practice. Yeah. But for what our clients are doing, they're just going to take it out and invest in real estate, invest in their business.
0: Yeah. And so, so the benefit is, so if we just articulate the benefit. Jimmy has $100,000 in Bank of America account. Now, like you said, he moved it from his left pocket to his right pocket. It goes into this structured vehicle that you guys have built for Jimmy. And instead of making 0.01% or nothing in interest now, Jimmy's, I'll make the low end of the scale, 3.5%, whatever that may be, right? Um, seven days later, Jimmy has $100,000 in this policy at 3.5%. And he's also choosing to contribute on a monthly basis to this account. So the first benefit is he has three thousand X his his, uh, his 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 interest uh, interest income on that, which is the benefit number one, right? Benefit number two is that I, what I what I'm unclear about is like you you're talking about borrowing from this policy. I'm like, well, I could borrow from my. I could just take money from my bank of America account and just use it to invest in real estate. Why would I borrow from my life insurance policy?
2: All right. So I'm going to give you an example that most people will understand and then apply it to this because I think it it makes it so much clearer. So in, in a home, let's say you own a piece of real estate and it's free and clear. It's a hundred thousand dollar piece of property and you need cash. When you go to the bank, you say, hey, I need to borrow against the equity in this house. True? Right. Like, that's, that's what's right. actually happening. They're not physically driving over to the house and taking dollars out of the bricks. <laughs> yes. They're literally, they're like, hey, that's, we're going to use that as collateral. Right. And we're going to give you this line of credit against it. Let's say it's 25000 whatever. Right. They're, they're lending you their money, the 25000 and you're now free to do with it whatever you want, right? You you write the check, you go invest in something else, you do repairs, whatever whatever it is. And while you're in order for that to happen, what's happened is now you have access to capital, but the value of the home is unimpeded. Correct. Right. That hundred thousand dollar asset could grow to one hundred ten thousand next year. We see, you know, appreciation in the market. That is, that is how you leverage against an asset, right? Well, in a life insurance policy, you're also building equity. And so it's very similar to a home in that, in that regard. And when you need to borrow cash or you need to access capital, you're not taking money out of your life insurance proceeds like you would a bank account. Right, if I have hundred thousand dollars at Bank of America and I need twenty five thousand dollars, my balance automatically reduces to seventy five thousand, and that's the only amount I can earn interest or appreciation. To use the the home example, um, you know, that's the only place I can get it from is the seventy five that's left over. And right, that's what, and that's what Russ was saying. Don't mess with the gold, right? Exactly. So why why we want to kind of substitute? a whole life policy in for that bank of America account is now when I have that hundred thousand dollar cash value in my bank, my policy, I go to the insurance company and say, I need to, I need to access some capital and they allow me to borrow their funds. The 25,000, let's say an example. And I'm still earning my three to 5% interest off Ah, of the hundred K. Awesome. So this is just a simple thing, but now compound that over your lifetime. How many dollars do we give up when we use our own cash in a bank account? And this is this is where it really gets kind of fuzzy is people don't see opportunity costs because nobody sends you a bill for it, right? right. You don't get a bill at the end of the year that says, hey, by the way, you spent $300,000 out of your bank account that could have earned X. But that's yeah. what's happening. And over your lifetime, that number is astronomical. So the policy allows us to cap capture that never give it up and always be leveraging it to to buy whatever that is whether it's an expense or an investment opportunity and never give that dollar up it's always growing as as russ said my gold is always multiplying
0: is there a is there i'm I'm assuming the borrowing of against your insurance policy there's some financing cost to that is that correct
1: Absolutely. Insurance companies have to put the money to work somewhere on your behalf, right? Like when you get an insurance policy, there's a death benefit associated with it. And most of the world thinks about it in term life insurance. I'll buy a 20-year policy. Again, we're Walmart shoppers, right? How big of a policy can I get for the least amount of money? Right. Now, Sharon, do you know what percentage of term policies ever pay a death benefit? No. What, just throw out a number. Think about what, just guess. What do you think? How big the number is?
0: 10%.
1: Less than 2%. <laughs> it's good math no, for them. it makes sense, right? Like I can't pay a hundred bucks a month to get $5 million of death benefit <laughs> and then pay, and they, they, you know. You they know, ever an, pay, up, yeah. A, an insurance company, literally all they're doing is taking premiums, putting in a general account that earns them five or 6% interest, right? And then subtracting the death claims that come And still having a profit left over. That's it. So it it literally, that's the reason it's quote unquote cheap. But the reality is, is when you buy something and you don't get any benefit out of it, it becomes expensive. Right. So the reason, you know, whole life insurance policies exist is that the cash value that you're putting in must actually grow to equal the death benefit at a future age. Now that age has been marked based upon different tables at 121. So when we're putting money in these accounts, like Joey said, that 100000 has to grow to equal a future death benefit. Right. And it's going to do it no matter what.
2: Contractually, it has to.
1: So what right. we're doing is literally just adding a 1% to 2% delta to everything that we do for all the cash flows that come through our hands. Right. Because, yes, we borrow insurance companies' money. They have to put it to work. Most of the places they do it, they put it in bonds. They also buy some real estate and lease it out to Fortune 500 companies, right? But a little a small fraction of that are policy loans. And insurance companies charge anywhere between 4 to 8%, depending on the company that you're dealing with, to borrow the money. It's the safest place for them to put money, right? There is no management over that. Right. Because, Sharon, a loan and life insurance policy is actually technically a prepayment of the death benefit. Uh-huh. gotcha. So if you had a million dollar death benefit and you took a hundred thousand dollar loan and you died tomorrow, they pay your wife 900,000. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So you see how you reduce their liability. And if you don't pay them back, they don't care. Yeah. Right. Because it it's them reducing the liability that exists. Now, if I pay them back, what happens to the death benefit? It starts ratcheting back up. Right. So right. for, for the insurance companies, it is a good benefit for them for us as policyholders, like Joey's example, and we love using the house this because we have tons of real estate investors. Our real estate investor community is probably the biggest advocates of this because they, they understand the leverage of capital. They understand how money can, getting money in motion, the velocity of money is, is so valuable to them. But they also hate going to banks. Right. They hate having to fill out all the stinking paperwork. And especially some of the flippers that exist out there, they hate having to, you know, pay interest on the capital out of their, their cash flow while the, the house is being turned over. Well, when you take a loan, Sharon, at an insurance company, so I'm going to go back to Jimmy.
0: Yeah.
1: He has 100000 of cash value, and he says, I want, I've got an investment opportunity for this money. He's vetted it. He looks at the deal. It makes sense. He goes to the insurance company. He, he requests his $100,000 loan. They're going to ask him two questions. One, validate you want a hundred thousand. And two, which account do you want us to send it to?
2: <laughs> That's it. It's pretty extensive. Yeah.
1: The, there is no more, right? And in the real estate investor community out there, or even the business owner community, because we know we, we all have these lines of credit and we have to give them personal our, financial statements. Personal financial statements once a year. And it's like, please take another pint of butt, right? Yeah. It they love the the simplicity that works with that but also Sharon that interest that we were talking about is non-structured meaning that there is no monthly um invoice that comes in the mail that says Sharon you had 100,000 out at 5% here's you, you need to pay your 413 dollars or whatever that math is that yes. doesn't happen it's unstructured it's accruing interest only on that yeah. on that note at the end of the year they would then send you your your invoice and say, Sean, you had a $100,000 loan out. Um, Your your interest due on this is 5,000 if it had a 5% interest rate. And if you choose to write a check, you can. And then it keeps your your loan at 100,000. If you don't pay it, your loan just become 105,000. Yeah, they they just add it to the principal balance. Yeah, exactly. This is the simple part of this is that we are, people don't understand the functionality of how these loans work. But more importantly like Joey said, it's what we're doing with the dollars and getting those dollars to work. The
0: um correct me if I'm wrong, but for me there was a there was a really cool aha moment here which I've never which you know I I understand the structuring component of this stuff but a couple of pieces kind of um Uh, connected for me. One was when you said, hey, I want the best policy that I can have right now is a policy with a $1 death benefit. That was a data point. I was like, okay. But then you said, well, I can't get that because of these tables and things like that because of requirements. Cool. So assume that there is a baseline of a death benefit that is necessary. So, So now I know that the best policy that I can have is a $1 death benefit. Number two, there's probably a baseline. But number three, I can borrow against my policy to artificially reduce my death benefit to a dollar. Is that, did I, did I get it? Yeah, you're, you're, you're absolutely getting, you're, you're
1: moving in the direction where we are playing control, right? We are being in control. And I don't know as entrepreneurs, like there's anything that we want more of It's control. Like give us the wheel, would you?
2: (laughs) Well, and to be honest, Sharon, just to add something else, if you're an entrepreneur you already know there's something wrong with our current financial industry because it doesn't make sense to you, right? You're in the business of cash flow. If you're if you don't have cash flow, your business halts, right? Yeah. It's done. But yet you're being told to put money into things that you can't access and don't create cash flow. Like inherently it goes against who you are, but you're like, well, I mean, I don't know what else to do. My accountant says to do this because it helps me with my taxes today. And I guess this is what you're supposed to do, but you know, I can yeah. invest in my business and probably 10 exit in the next five years. So, is, so is here's the question. investment going to do that for you. Not a chance. So, so anyways, I, I guess what I'm saying, I'm bringing it full circle. Is like, dude, if you have access to your own capital and you can then put it to work and the things that you know, and understand first investing in yourself and the things you control and influence, and then into collateralized assets for passive income, can you lose? No, you cannot okay. lose in this, in this game. If you have control and you know what the, the formula look, looks like for, for freedom.
0: So it, it, I think it still keeps going back to like, how can I be my own banker? Like that's the cool part, right? If you can keep coming back to how can I be my own banker, that gets exciting. Um, I, I'd like to talk maybe uh, from, from your kind of experience about, okay, here I am, I, I get the infinite banking concept. I get the vehicle that we can use. Now, if we had to bring it more to life, can you talk maybe uh, briefly about ways that you have seen money borrowed, utilized, from a policy uh, that's been invested elsewhere. And I want to start with one very specific kind of ca- uh, scenario, which I'd love for your guidance on. Children, like I, so so help me with this. I can't like this whole f- uh, uh, 529 plan, uh, like my goodness, right? Like it, it bothers me so much, but, Um. Uh, and, you know, so we can we like I talked to my social state planning attorney. We we're like, hey, we'll do a vehicle. The, my attorney's like, you're overthinking this, Sharon. Like this is you don't need any of this. Right. So I believe that if we can just if if we were just taught how to take care of our children. And, and I think all of us are putting money aside for our children. And you know what, Russ and Joey, I actually think there is a entrepreneur right now listening to the show that went into his or her bank of America office asked for a creation of a separate account and uh, has set up a monthly disbursement into their account of like $700 each to make sure that they can pay for college tuition in 18 years. I know that is true. So maybe you can talk to like some ideas around how you manage, how you manage and invest for children.
1: Oh, so I actually created a video. If you go to the wealth, wealth, wall street, YouTube page, you can watch this. It's how my daughter will buy her first car via infinite banking. Oh,
0: so good.
1: And and this is, so I have four children. Joey has five. He has one up me. And (laughs) I I own two life insurance policies, two whole life insurance policies on each one of my daughters. So as opposed to putting money, say, in a 529 plan, right? Because that's all we know for kids. It's savings accounts. Our 529 plans, that's all that exists. I mean, there used to be these Coverdell plans and nobody does that. anymore. Like, you know, that's what we do. Well, so here's the thing. Like when I think about 529 plans and I was in that world, I set up plenty of 529 yeah. plans in my day. It's what was its purpose? College, right? It's college. But you and I are
2: singular, singular purpose. We're
1: yeah. talking about entrepreneurship, we're talking about what the school system sets up a lot of times, right? It, it's not training an entrepreneur mindset. It's training an employee mindset. So as entrepreneurs, we start really getting conflicted. Like, well, I went to college, but, you know, I'm an entrepreneur. Like, should I send my kids to college? That question sometimes comes up. And it's like, well, how am I going to teach my kid? Well, what if they don't go to college and I put money in this 529 plan? One, I can't touch it. In my own business, I could, you know, we all know that we could invest our kids' dollars in our businesses and 10X them yearly sometimes. Yep. Yet we instead give it to mutual fund advisors to dink around with. And sometimes in 10 years, barely have what we put in there, right, right, available, right? Because that's the lost decade we've kind of been in uh, prior to the last two years, right? We were kind of in that lost decade. So it's kind of like, well, that doesn't make sense to me. I don't understand it, but that's the only thing available. So I, I knew this, I learned this, thankfully, a little over 10 years ago. And so I've been putting money in the lease whole life policies on my, on my kids. And and I, I started with one each and then I added a second policy. So my daughter's 15, get her in to turn 16 next year. And I was like, okay, well, let, let's, let's look through what you have. She had a little over $20,000 in her whole life policies. I was like, all right, so let's talk about how you're going to buy a car. Because the thing is, I'm not buying you a car. <laughs> That's just not what's going to happen, right? You're going to have to buy your own car. And she's like, well, how am I going to buy a car? I was like, that's what we got to figure out. I was like, now there's a couple of things that can happen is like, I run a short-term rental business and, you know, I can teach you how the short-term rental business works and how we make $800 net a month off every bedroom that we have in our units. So if we have two bedroom, it makes $1,600 net. I can show you how to do that. And, but that's going to require, you know, 10 to 12, $15,000 to, you know, get it started. Well, where am I going to come up with that? Well, you do have this account over here, this whole life policy, or technically two whole life policies, it's got that cash, and it could create that cash flow. And then we start looking at cars, right? Well, what do cars cost? And what would be the monthly payment, you know, to have that car paid off before, before you're 18? And where, where are you going to get that cash? Well, if we had this, this short-term rental business and it was bringing in $800 a month or $1,600 a month, then it could make the car note payment, right? And, and now, now we have excess money that could go back and replenish the money that you use to start the short-term rental business. And so we started putting those things together. And I don't want to make you go watch the whole video to understand, because <laughs> I drew it all out. It's hard in a you know two-minute segment to, to really give you light of this. But what I did is I taught my daughter, one, that she has access to cash, but my important thing to her was, is that I'm going to put this cash, but you can't spend it and it's gone. Because that is the mistake that we as business owners make all the time. Yeah. is when we see an amount of money in our checking accounts, we assume that gives us the privilege to go spend it. Yeah. But we don't then replenish in it. And then the next time we're at the bank again, borrowing money on their terms. And I know the day's terms are really great. And I'm not saying that I don't borrow money from banks because they are great right now. But I do it because I can, right? I got the cash if I want to. And literally we're buying a car and I'm writing a, a check from the line of credit. <laughs> For her, and I'm doing it. Uh, today's Friday. I'm actually <laughs> driving to the dealership tomorrow and doing it. And we're setting up her uh, her first short-term rental um, in January, and it's going to be the cash flow to replenish the money that she borrowed for her car. And and the whole time she's going to be learning a business, and she's also going to be learning the value that. We can't borrow money and not pay it back. Yeah. And if she and I put her in a position that I wasn't put in where she has an account to start from. So she doesn't start from zero going negative and trying to always work back to zero. She's always above zero. And when she borrows money, it goes down and she's working it back up. Right. And she's going to be in that position. So that way, when she gets to be 25 and she wants to buy her first house, that account is not 20,000, it's 200,000. And she can do the same thing and borrow it, but it's going to be on the payment schedule to put it back in. So when when she's down the road and she wants to buy another investment property, she can keep borrowing against it. And she's in a position of control. That's a tool that if I want to, by the way, the short-term rental can pay her monthly tuition or quarterly tuition. That's cool. She decides she wants to go. But if she decides, you know, I, I think actually I'm bringing in $40,000, $50,000, $60,000 $40,000, dollars $60,000 a year for my, my short-term rentals that I have. <laughs> and, and I would prefer to see, can I make that two, three, four, 10 times that I want to go that route. She can. And we're like, okay. And I don't have to go to the government and say, please, you know, cancel my 529 plan and, and charge me all the taxes and penalties on that. <laughs> right? Like, no, I, I think the education plan should be her involvement in the business itself.
2: Well and the the point there, Sharon, I mean I'm sure you got this, but just to kind of clear this up, the five twenty nine plan has a singular purpose. Right. And it it limits you. And as entrepreneurs, business owners, we don't like to be told I have to do it for this purpose. To be honest, 15 to 20 years from now, depending on how old your kids are, you have no idea.
0: Yeah, Facebook that, University, man. Yeah.
2: No idea. I mean, yeah. Literally, we could be in a totally different situation. But what but what Russ has just outlined, what we're walking clients through every day is you need to have access and control so that your life with your children can be on your terms. You can decide at that point what you want to do. Are we going to pay for college with this or not? Are we going to start a business with this or not? Are we going to buy assets are we going to pay for these expenses? This is your control. You're the bank. And, and that's what, I mean, if we're just kind of wrapping a bow on this, like, ultimately, that's what this is about. And, and you should, I mean, at the end of the day, as business owners and family, running a family, you should be in control of that. And you can make the best decisions.
0: Yeah. Uh, how, I know a lot of folks in, you know, uh, have bought term insurance. Just to kind of protect themselves, how about key man? How about which is all cool? I, I appreciate all of that. How does somebody say, Well, heck, no one told me this? What do I like? Where do I go? And how can somebody um help set this up for me without me feeling like someone sold me something?
1: Hmm. Yeah, that's the thing, is that I think there unfortunately there's not a ton of information out there where you go to the the local person the person maybe you bought your term insurance for from and and you say hey i heard this interesting idea on a podcast called infinite banking it's where you buy whole life insurance and you borrow against it can you set that up for me and and that's usually a, a deal that goes bad a lot and we, we dangerous get, <laughs> we get people that end up calling us who join our community and who are like, you know, I I did this a couple of years ago because I heard a podcast or I read a book on the subject matter. And now I've been putting money into this account for two or three years, but I've never been able to borrow against it because there was no cash. And it was because it was set up the typical way whole life insurance is set up where you put as little as you can in there, you get a big death benefit. And yes, sure. In 25 years, there'd be some money there, but there's nothing now. And they're like, I'm assuming that's not right. Or they didn't buy a whole life policy. They, Their advisor said, you know what? What's even better than a whole life policy is this thing called an index universal life policy. And it earns actually stock market type returns. And, oh, it's so much better than that. And they get derailed. So to answer your question is, one, I would say you got to seek out someone who specializes in this. And it's not usually from a typical insurance company because insurance companies don't teach it. And that's right. why we built a whole community. We built courses around this. We built um, an inner circle that exists just for people who are doing this. And and so we've got, you know, uh, uh, 3,500 people right now in our community. And their whole focus is, one, how do I reach passive income greater than monthly expenses? And two, how do I use these tools that exist like infinite banking to ensure
0: I get there faster? Right. Um, I... I'm, I'm I'm a person listening, I'm driving in the car. I'm like, okay, I'm conceptually, philosophically sold. I need to do something. Uh, what is like? What is that first step?
2: So the first step is always gonna be to have a 15-minute call with one of our coaches. Ultimately, they're going to make sure it's a good fit. You're gonna kind of confirm it's a good fit during that 15 minutes. I know it doesn't sound like a long time, but in that amount of time, We can determine together if you should even be making that next step. And then from there, you're going to literally walk through a series of a few meetings just to um, look at your whole situation and apply this to you. Because sometimes you take a concept, it sounds great, but when you apply it to your situation, it becomes so much clearer and so much more like, okay, I, this absolutely is what we need to do. And it's also an opportunity to get you and your spouse on the same page because sometimes we find is one person hears about it, they get all excited, they go back home and it's like whack-a-mole, like, wham, what are you thinking? Whole yeah. life insurance this is the worst thing ever. But it gives, that process gives time for everybody to be on the same page and then to subsequently set up your policies as a result.
1: Yeah, so sure, our process is... When people come in, we're gonna help them try to gain clarity of what they really want and why they want it. Like, we're not here to sell life insurance. Our process is to help people fulfill the objective of, I don't wanna tell my daughter on the way to school that I have to go to work. Right. And so we're gonna make sure that we understand that goal. Because to be honest, like, you know, somebody can come to a fitness gym and, or, you know, a place who sells gym equipment and says, man, uh, I want this, this, and this. But without understanding why they want it, like they might not get the right stuff and ultimately may not even get the best use out of it. So what we're going to make sure we do in step one is get clarity. Step two is we're going to help them understand their cash flows if they need us to and want us to. And then we're going to show them how this process works to flow our cash flow through. And then again, we have tools available in our community and processes where people can jump in to say, okay, now how do we get that passive income? And then how do I use these insurance contracts that help me leverage it to go buy that? That's our process. We want to walk people through with the purpose of not selling life insurance, but for the purpose of helping them with those financial foundational steps that they need in their life that maybe, yes, they've neglected at this point. And it's okay. We've all done it. But now here's the next best day. You know, best day to plant a tree was 20 years ago. next best day is today. And our job is to help people along that road. And, you know, we, we can, if you want to, we can put a link in the show notes of like exactly how, like what that free gift is. Like, cause we have, we have some stuff that we'll give them a tool that will yeah. show them right where they are and then can put them in a the process to be able to take those next steps. Like Joey was
2: talking about.
0: Yeah. I think that, you know, I think uh, what you guys showed me before, which is uh, for someone that has stayed with us this long, watch the show here so far uh, for no other reason, uh, I, you know, the, uh, our show specifically is called business school for this reason stuff they never taught you in business school like i i tell my wife this all the time it's it's you know Srivatsa family llc that's what this is everything else is built in service of our family run as a business our family is the board like there's a very there's we run our family like a business and it and it's super important right and if you've been here this long listen to the stories and and the philosophy of what you know russ and joy are sharing I believe the least you could do is just go uh, kind of work that scorecard tool. I think that's just a that's just a foundational process. Yes, don't don't feel pressure to jump on a call or anything like that, but but at least if you've done all the work, you've already been here, just go get the scorecard tool. I think it's irresponsible otherwise for the financial kind of blueprint for the bloodline of your family to not even get the tool of where you are. So I'll put a link in the show notes. We'll get the get yourself the scorecard. It, it, I think it takes under five minutes to do the scorecard. And then that becomes a really nice kind of intro to the call, because now you can show up to one of Russ and Joey's coach and they're like, you did the scorecard. Like I can help you so much more to figure out what, maybe they're already on a good path and that's great. So, totally. so, so
1: yeah. Wh- why don't we, why don't we create a link? What's forward slash Sharon. And, and then that they get access to that. Exactly what you just said. Cause I, I totally agree. The scorecard is the aha moment for most people. And if you do decide to have that 15-minute call, like that's going to be going to make that 15-minute call so much more um, beneficial for you and the the coach on the other end of the line, like being able to give you feedback.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. Hey, uh, um, I I really appreciate you guys. Like right from the first time I kind of hung out with Joey, I was like, what is this Walt without Wall Street thing, especially for a Wall Street banker guy, right? I mean, I was a former former Goldman guy, and I've been in the belly of the beast. I've seen – how um, banks make money, and the, and the fascinating part you would know, you guys know this? Most of the money made by Goldman as an entity, the the blue chip bank, is they made it on principal investments. Like well, how Goldman didn't make money with advisory; they made money on investing Goldman Capital. That was how they made money. And and the sooner we all realize that, the better. And and so could we take a book from that? And I think uh, uh, my biggest learning from all of this is hey, let's you know. Let's be our own baker. So uh, let's enjoy it. Can't thank you guys enough for dropping some amazing knowledge today, man. Really appreciate you guys.
2: It is a privilege. Thank you for having us. Our pleasure.
0: Hey, Sharon, I have a cool gift for you. I took some of my best ideas from the last 20 years and created a five-day MBA. It's quick and action-packed, That you can listen to on the go, just like this podcast. And I want to give it to you for free, just as a thank you for listening to the show. No fluff, no gimmicks, just pure actionable ideas for you to use instantly. You can grab it right now at businessschoolshow.com. That's businessschoolshow.com.